0: Does this show contribute to civil discourse? I got uh, the Gonzaga alumni magazine the other day, uh, which I really enjoy, good work Gonzaga, and uh, they had an article in there about the possibility of forming a center to further civil discourse. Civil discourse being reasonable discussions by people who hold widely different views, especially in politics, and as we all know, That is becoming more difficult in modern society. My reaction to the idea and the article talking about the need for civil discourse in our society was like, yes, yes, do that. We absolutely need that. And it got me to thinking, am I helping or hindering the effort to have more civil discourse in these United States? Answer is, I am doing this show because I hope it helps. uh, But I have not been explicit about why I think the compass of power leads us to better discourse and better civil understanding. And if you don't say something explicitly, sometimes that's the same as not saying it at all. So we're going to talk about how this show and this perspective helps you stay grounded and engage in more civil discourse about the blistering topics of our time. Welcome to The Compass of Power. I'm Adam Wilson. I really enjoy thinking about politics, and I have come to my own view of how it works. And this show is going to talk a little bit about how that view has helped me stay more grounded, a little less drawn into politics, and a little bit more realistic in my expectations. The Compass of Power helps you understand the limits of the possible. I hope... It recognizes the goodness in other people, and it cultivates a reasonable expectation of national politics. I think that this view and the related views, I call it the compass of power because that's how I think about it, but generally this regional geographic historical perspective of politics helps you see through some of the illusory themes out there of party, personality, and paradigm. If you look at national politics and take it at face value, you get drawn into tribalism. You start cheering for your team. The reporting is often uh, criticized as being essentially sports reporting, right? Who's winning? Who's losing? And you become over-identified with your people in all sorts of ways. Your people can be your party. It can be... Individual politicians that you think are so great that they're actually beyond the human capability of being great. Uh, It can mean that you start to over identify with other identities that we claim are linked up with national identity and politics. For example, it can, if you get a little too deep in the weeds, you can start thinking, well, All people of one race vote that way, and all people of the other race vote that way. All people of this sexual orientation feel this way about that policy, and all people of the other sexual orientation feel that way about this policy. All people who make above this much money feel this way about that thing, and everyone who makes less than this much money feels the other way about that thing. None of which is completely true. None of which actually lines up. It turns out that when you get into this tribalism and you start taking national politics at face value, you become deeply entrenched on other people's behalf when those people have very lightly held principles. Why are their principles so lightly held? We're going to talk about it. If you use the compass of power, you get a steadier perspective because it does not assume the power to change much. If We're talking about the view I espouse on this show. We are not assuming that we are going to take charge and rewrite everything. The U.S. is already put together. The culture has been established. And from there, we can work with what we can do. So what is this perspective I keep calling the compass of power? There's a few things in it. One is that there are multiple cultures within the United States. I think we all know that to be true, but the framework we are given is often different from what I mean. I don't mean that there are Mexican Americans and Italian Americans and Chinese Americans or that there's the East Coast culture and the West Coast culture per, per se. What I mean is that different groups of people settle different parts of the United States over time and that Those early settlements set the standard. There was actually in Spokane, uh, there's a new high school apparently. I was looking at the Spokesman Review and they quoted one of the seniors as saying, we got it going, we made the culture, something like that. But basically saying we we made this culture because we're the first class through this school. That kid's right because once you get it going, it just keeps going. And we understand that if we look at human uh, – American history, just a little bit, we will see that, oh, wait, there, there was a civil war that wasn't about just like political differences, but big cultural differences between the North and the South. And those are still the big groups we have today. There's more different cultures. There's a different culture on the left coast than there is in the deep South. There's a different culture in the deep South than there is in the Southwest. Than there is in Appalachia than there is in the Midwest. But generally speaking, we know because we had a war about it, And we had a civil rights era about it, that there's a big difference between the North and the South. So point one and two, points one and two here, uh, one, there are regional cultural differences in the United States. Two, they don't change much over time. What does change, point three, is the power balance. That's the compass part. In a democracy where most of the people are, that's where most of the power is. I live in Washington State. Seattle has the most people and the region around Seattle is like a bullseye with more and more people Uh, towards the center. Those people call the shots because it's one person per vote here. That is true across the United States. Illinois is a big state. Chicago calls the shots because most of the people are in Chicago. But on a national continental scale, that center population moves around and it's been drifting south for a very long time. No one has full control over that. It's economic reasons, uh, not just within the United States, but globally. There could be climate reasons. There could be policy reasons. But the center of power moves around. And when it does, it feels like our culture is changing because suddenly the people who used to be on the bench watching the game are now the players. You're not going to change other cultures' minds. This is not a case of being persuasive. Another common mistake in national politics is if we just had better communications, we would win. If we could just explain what we want, then they would want it too. Well, guess what? They don't want what you want because it's actually a different place than your place. You can understand where other people are coming from if you take this view. You can say, oh, you know what? I, here in Washington State, am never going to get Alabama to want to be me. Also, New Mexico is never going to convince Maine to follow the New Mexico model. But we could find out what we have in common. When you adjust your expectations, you get all sorts of benefits. You can start understanding who your allies are, really, right? Like... If you are a Democrat, you probably are starting to instinctively understand that you have some allies in the South. That's how you won Georgia in the last presidential election. But they are not the rulers of Georgia, they are the underclass. You're trying to get people who are on the bottom looking up in other places to be your friend. So, just to take my New Mexico, Maine example, which popped into my head recently, is actually really entertaining me right now as I think about it, but you're in New Mexico and you want Maine to come along with you for some reason. Um, You're not maybe going to get the elite people of Maine who already have things the way they want them to change things for you. But there are people in Maine who want things changed. And maybe if you help them get that change, they're going to help you with your change. You see what I'm saying here? And it opens a possibility if you take this viewpoint to maybe pile up with those elites. So now you're in New Mexico and you could make a deal with the people who want to be in charge there. Maybe you can do something to help them and they'll help you. Or you could say, look, uh, Senator from Maine, Susan Collins, I have something I want and I know what you want. And I know we're not heading in the same direction, but maybe this one time, We could cut a deal. That's what happens practically in the U.S. Senate all the time and to a lesser degree in the House. It's definitely what Joe Biden does. That is the art of politics. It's the art of the deal. Don't listen to what Donald Trump says, how you do the art of the deal. That's a different kind of art. I will admit that he seems to have an amazing ability to get through things. But the art of writing a bill that becomes law comes down to making those alliances. And know, and if you take the compass of power perspective, you have a much clearer idea of how those alliances might work. Really, perhaps the best part of adopting the compass of power as a worldview is knowing that you're never going to get them to be you. Do we think that we can make other people like us? Yes. Yes. All individual humans fall into that trap all the time, right? You do it with your kids all the time. You're like... Hey, kid, do your homework, and then you can get a degree like me. What if your kid doesn't want to do the homework, can't do the homework, doesn't want to be you, right? Well, it scales all the way up. Again, we so often have these national political debates as if, (laughs) this is especially true of liberals for reasons uh, of culture and region, they believe they can transform the entire United States into one massive New England. That has been their mission forever, and I'll tell you why. Because Massachusetts was founded by people who came there from England to take the forest land that had native inhabitants and create heaven on earth. Their goal as Puritans was to create an ideal society, and that mission continues to this day. And that's why liberals especially have a very difficult time understanding that even if people agree with them, On issues like you can get other people to agree that women have the right to vote, sometimes their approach is so condescending over the top or moralizing that it actually creates resistance where otherwise would not exist. This is the what's the matter with Kansas question. That was big a while back because it seemed like people in Kansas who otherwise would benefit from liberal policies kept voting for Republicans. What is their deal? They are middle-income, working-class people in a plain state, plenty of agriculture. Why don't you go with the big government approach that's going to help you out? Well, it's not reasonable to ask people to be like you. And we'll look at COVID. Here's another example. A lot of people, especially in the progressive side, in my view, felt like people were just being ridiculous saying that their freedom was worth more than dying. Like that you're, so you're not going to wear a mask and you're going to die. What an idiot. Well, what if they sincerely, sincerely value freedom higher than health? What if in their culture, the way they were brought up where they live, freedom is more important than health. So yes, they're going to do that and they don't feel bad. If you take the regional perspective that comes into focus and you start talking a little bit differently, right? You start trying to negotiate with that stacking of values rather than trying to change the values themselves. Um, this is part of remembering people's essential humanity. In my point, uh, in my view. I feel like we should assume the best of others. Life is better when you do. It can be difficult, but we should do it. And you should presume that people are acting in accordance with their own values, right? Even if they're trampling on your own, it's better to proceed from a point of view of like, okay, well, they're trying to do what they think is right, and I'm trying to do what I think is right. If you start with the idea of like, I'm doing what's right, and for some reason you're not getting it, you are not going to be very persuasive, nor are you going to enact much change. When we say, okay... I'm living here on the West coast where things are very, very liberal and I cannot understand why people in Arkansas are not going along with me. You could, you would be better off thinking, well, the people in Arkansas are doing what they think's right. And I'm doing, what I think's right. So how are we going to negotiate through to something that we both agree is pretty good. If you move along without that compass, You get subject to parties, personalities, and paradigms that keep you trapped in this them bad, us good psychology. And I want to go through each of those real quick. Parties. People tend to super identify with their party. In fact, people don't change parties. It's very rare. Now, interestingly, people in elected office seem to change parties every once in a while. Like It is a kind of a regular occurring thing if you watch the news. But for most Americans, if you are a Democrat, when you start voting, you will probably go to your grave as a Democrat. In the same way that if you are a Methodist, you are going to stay a Methodist. It is very comparable. Like you, do, you generations may change. You, for example, uh, may have been a Southern Democrat back in the day, and you stayed a Democrat. But you just started voting Republican, whereas your kids. Say they're Republican and vote Republican, and that's exactly the change that has happened as the compass of power has tipped south. And there's been many parties, by the way. I mean, we've had a very stable like Democrat versus Republican party system since the Civil War. Just, uh, but there were the Whigs for a while. There were Democratic Republicans. But just taking with the the Democrats and the Republicans, who's tough on Russia, right? Which which was a party of hawks for a while, or who was the which one of those was the party for free trade and which one was the one for trade war how about uh the broad category of civil rights uh broadening the right to vote making it easier for people to get to the polls that was the republican position when the republican party started now it's not the uh republicans were tough on russia but now they're not who was for Trade restrictions. It was the Democrats, but now it's not. The Democrats are no longer the party of the working class, right? Uh, they are, and this is like one of those things that you can actually demonstrably prove through your exit polls and surveys and whatnot. What does stay true are the interests of the North and the South and their alliances thereof. So when the North had a lot of industry that it wanted to protect, it was generally favorable to trade restrictions. When the party of the North was uh, shifting from being the Republicans to the Democrats, the Democrats suddenly got on the civil rights bandwagon, despite being the party that was dead set against moving the civil rights bandwagon for generations. But once they made that shift and became a dominant force in the North, almost immediately the party switches over to being wanting to expand voting rights, which is the Northern view, which is that like the maximum number of people are voting, uh, the maximum definition of voter versus only, you know, that is voting as a right, not a privilege. That is the Northern view voting as a privilege, not a right Southern view. All of those sort of switches and party stance fall along cultural lines between the North and the South. So if you stick with the party, the party might change on you. But if you understand that you are generally in alignment with where you live, that's not going to change. How about personality? People tend to lock on to star politicians. These people make it into the history books and are remembered for a long time. Think JFK. Think Reagan? What about Obama? What about Trump? All of those people had legions of fans. Uh, in fact, you know, some people get into like a lot of people call like the following behind Trump, like a cult or something, right? The Trumpistas. They're just so intensely loyal to Trump, even when he doesn't seem to be loyal to them. Or it can work the other way. Uh, and Trump is another great example of uh, the, the Let's Go Brandon Crowd, right? Like they just, there are people who just loathe Joe Biden. It's kind of an inverse cult of personality. That's a little hard for me to understand, honestly, because I I don't think that Joe Biden comes across as a particularly uh, caustic or polarizing personality, but it is the inverse of the cult of personality. It applies to the media. You have Bill O'Reilly and Tucker Carlson. There's Jon Stewart and Rachel Maddow, right? They seem like they're all coming from different perspectives and they have strongly uh, thought out partisan views. But they also are really from a place, right? Who does the talking in the United States? New Yorkers do. Uh, that Bill O'Reilly and Jon Stewart are both children of New York City. Rachel Maddow and Tucker Carlson Carlson both from California. They are archetypes. And when we get really into our favorite commentator or our favorite president, we forget that we should probably be supporting someone who supports things that we like, not liking things because they like them. I think that's been particularly difficult, for example, for the Republican Party to deal with because they have seen how the cult of personality around Donald Trump has changed the way Republicans writ large view things. But I would argue that that was probably true under Reagan too, that there was a view of themselves that Reagan, that Republicans had pre-Reagan and post-Reagan. And that has something to do with, if you get into like social identity theory and psychology, you have to have a prototype of your group. doesn't matter if you're talking about, well, I am a social worker or I am a... Buffalo Bills fan or I am a Republican, there's somebody out there that you hold in your head that's like the perfect Buffalo Bills fan, the perfect social worker, the perfect Republican, and you try to be that person. And these dominant personalities can change that prototype. The problem with following these people is that they are just people. And that you should have your own views on what is good public policy and bad public policy, what your values are and what your values are not. And you can be led far, far astray from what's good for you if you just go along with someone you like. That brings me to paradigms. Paradigms. Now, I will admit the compass of power or just regional you know, uh, culture, cultural histi- historiography. Can I say that? Uh, but when we talk about the taking geography... And history and combining them into politics. That is a paradigm. But I like it because it literally is from history and can stand up over time. We are constantly reinventing theories to explain the shape of current politics. And like the issues at hand, they shift and they change in kind of inexplicable ways. <clears throat> Here's a is it? Liberals want more government and taxes, and conservatives want less government, fewer taxes. Is that how we explain politics? Or could we explain politics by saying that Republicans are the party of banks and businesses, and Democrats are the party of unions and hourly workers? Is it that Republicans are white nationalists and Democrats are people of color? Not one of these paradigms is true, although they have all become accepted wisdom over the years. Today, right now, we know that Republicans are gaining ground with working-class people of all races, and Democrats are becoming more popular with highly educated white people. We know that neither party is inclined to raise taxes, but both like to spend a lot of money, which, by the way, is how we get to raising the debt limit and fiscal cliffs and all of that. The point is that the compass of power can explain history, because if we look at what we've done over the centuries... It falls neatly into these battles between cultural groups in different regions. It can explain the present. It explains to us why the Republicans, as the party of the South, have adopted the views they have, and Democrats, as the party of the North, have adopted the views they have. And I would submit it can help us project further into the future. When you take that view, I just feel like you are more grounded. And that brings us back to civil discourse. If you are grounded in what is unlikely to change, you understand what is permanent, then you can focus on what can change. You can become aware of your own assumptions and check them along with your expectations of others. You can be a little bit more cognizant when you are demanding certain bills be passed or people vote for a certain person. You can start thinking a little bit about what you're really asking of them. How is what you want Going to land on them vis a vis their values. Now, none of this is to say you have to be timid. This does not mean that, like, we all have to be very polite and sit around with napkins in our laps for politics. I would argue there's more potential for strength when your feet are firmly on the ground. You, once you know where you're coming from, literally, and why things are the way they are, now you have the strength to start pushing where you know it counts and where you know you might make a difference. And sometimes it just has to come down to uh, force. The Civil Rights Act is a classic example of force. Up to and including troops. That was an effort By one region to enforce its will on another, the North stepped in and demanded the Southern political systems conform to their expectations. And they did that with support from allies in the South. It didn't turn out quite how the North expected. Not only was there widespread upheaval and social tumult in the South, the Republicans lost control of their party as Southern elites fled from the Democratic Party. Also, if the South had to end discrimination in law, the North suddenly had to grapple with discrimination in fact in the northern ghettos and substandard schools across the region. But letting push come to shove led to progress, and that's an example of having the fight on values and principles that the North firmly believed on in, was ready to go to bat for, and it changed. Um, and I hope that if we get a little bit more grounded about a nation whose identity is becoming more and more Southern living in an America that is going to be the prototype of an American is going to become more and more like the prototype of a Southern. And if we just accept that and know that that part's out of our control, but we can keep advocating for what we believe we can make more progress with less shoving and less shouting. That's my pitch for civil discourse and the Compass of Power. Thanks for listening, everybody. Tell your family, tell your friends, leave me a review, please, and we'll see you next time.